Well, hello, welcome here, friends. My name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and I want to welcome you into this online space that we're sharing together. Listen, whether you've spent a little bit of time or a lot of time around the Bible, admittedly, there are some elements of its composition that are confusing. So, for example, the chronology or the timeline of the Bible is not laid out cleanly from left to right as you read it in ways that we're accustomed to reading books in the Western Hemisphere. Look uh, with me at this diagram, for example. In the Old Testament scriptures, we move from the time of the judges into the time of the monarchy, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Around 931 BCE, the ancient kingdom of Israel splits into two. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And here we enter the time of the prophets. And lots and lots of books of the Old Testament happen or are written during this time. But the chronological narratives of the events of this time are back in First and Second Kings. And we studied Second Kings together as a community last summer. And when we get to the end of Second Kings, What's really odd about chronology is then we have the start of the events of the book of Daniel, which opens with the horrible event of the southern kingdom of Judah being overthrown and people being taken away into exile in Babylon. So what happened uh, at this point in history was that in about 606 BCE, a new world power, Babylon, came to the forefront in the ancient world and defeated the previous superpower, Egypt. And now Judah and the city of Jerusalem, formerly subject to Pharaoh in Egypt, are now an open target for one of the kings with the coolest name in the whole Bible, Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah and he captures the city of Jerusalem. He destroys the temple and then also takes back with him prisoners to his home country of Babylon. And Daniel and his friends are amongst those exiled. And that is how the book of Daniel begins. See, the practice in the ancient world was to take captives when you took over a nation from the noble families so that you totally decimated the leadership or the ruling class of the people that you subjugated. And the idea behind this was to keep people you conquered from banding together and rising up against you now that you were in power. So you would just simply take away all their most promising key families so that you could keep them down. And so this is how the book of Daniel opens with this as its history or its backdrop. Daniel and three of his friends find themselves amongst others dragged off to a foreign land and they are placed into a royal academy for training in the language and literature of Babylon. They are to undergo a three-year training period, which was really a cultural reprogramming program, and they were then to enter the administrative service of the king of Babylon. So that's where we find Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And we're going to follow their story in the fire for the months of July and August, because the book of Daniel we see the powerful picture of a person who remains faithful to God 
in the midst of hardships and challenges. And Daniel and his friends endure times of great testing, but they also see God's redemptive plans unfolding in their own lives and in the world around them. And so ultimately the book of Daniel helps instill hope in us that we too can be faithful when we face our own fiery trials. So let's dive in. If you have your Bible, open with me to the uh, beginning of Daniel, Daniel chapter one. We're gonna pick up Daniel's story a short time after he and his friends have entered this Babylon cultural retraining program. So you have to imagine four young adult men far away from home and family influences, living together with a large cohort of other young people from all across the globe, also separated from their families. And so Daniel chapter one, verse five, says that the king assigned to them a daily ration of food from his own and wine from his own kitchens. And they were to be trained for three years and then they would enter the royal service. So it kind of sounds in some ways like going off to university to live in dorms, doesn't it? You get the picture from some of the ancient historical records that this was kind of like a three-year frat party scene. Lots of alcohol is flowing. They're being fed from the king's table. Effectively, they're prisoners, but they are living a good, good life. And so, Shouldn't what happens in Babylon just kind of stay in Babylon? We're gonna see that Daniel and his friends face pressure, the same kind of pressure that you and I and many others face. And there's pressure to compromise their values and their faith. And for them, it started out at a very unusual place. It started out at the dinner table. And Daniel comes up against this pressure on a dietary front. Let's look together at Daniel chapter one, verse eight. Daniel, the text says, was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. And so he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. So we have to pause for a minute and just ask ourselves the question, what is the big deal about a little bit of meat and some wine? One of the things that marked the ancient Jewish people and is still true for some Jewish sects today is strict dietary laws and restrictions. And these are outlined in the Mosaic law in places like Leviticus chapter 11 and Numbers chapter, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 14. And they include very focused guidelines on not eating pork and other kinds of meats because they are considered unclean. And sometimes when we read through those kinds of prohibitions and those texts, they make no sense to us now. But biblical archeologists tell us that many of those restrictions were focused on eliminating or minimizing the transmission of disease or contagious viruses from animals to humans. Sounds strangely modern and prescient to our experiences with COVID-19 in some ways, doesn't it? But beyond the health aspects of the Mosaic Law, there were also religious elements to these restrictions. Biblical scholar Dr. Joyce Baldwin in her commentary on the book of Daniel notes that, quote, by Eastern standards, 
To share a meal was to commit oneself to friendship. The meal was of covenant significance. In other words, to share a meal was about more than just what was on the menu set before you. Table fellowship was a way of expressing deep commitment. And so table fellowship was what set the people apart in the Jewish tradition as people whom the one true God, Yahweh, had named as God's own. And their way of expressing that was by abstaining from eating those foods so that they could remain in right and pure relationship with Yahweh. And Daniel's name actually in Hebrew means God is my judge. And so while the Babylonians go through a process of wanting to rename him, they give him a Babylonian name, the text in the book of Daniel actually insists on referring to him by his given name as a way of Daniel and the writer of Daniel saying, oh, you can take me out of my country. You can take me away from my family. You can maybe take me away from the ability to practice my religion as I have been accustomed to, but you can never take me out of relationship with my God. No matter where I am or what I'm doing, God is still my judge and defender. And it's at the dinner table where Daniel now finds himself with a pretty serious choice to make because these, the legal elements for him of the dietary restrictions are very much still in place. And so he has to decide, do I just eat the meat drink the wine. Maybe he has a conversation with himself and says, oh, well, I mean, I'm far away from home. No one has to know. There really isn't another valid option here. If I want to consider career advancement, I'm in the king's service. Think of all the good that I could do for my people back home if I just accelerated into a position of power and authority. It's just a little bit of meat. It's just a little bit of wine. I'll just ask for forgiveness instead of permission. Well, the other reason for caution here is that we know that the ancient records tell us that meats and drinks in Babylon were offered to idols before they were consumed. Ancient people were highly superstitious, and so they would take just a small amount of wine and they would pour it out as an offering to the viticultural deities as a way of saying thank you. Or they would take small amounts of meat and they would place them in front of idols or statues, similar to the way that many cultures in the East do still to this day. And so then as now to eat and drink the rest of the food is essentially saying that you agreed with the offering. You were on board and complicit with the worship of these non-gods. And that's why the Mosaic laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy strictly prohibited the Hebrew people from eating such foods. And yet day after day, Daniel is to sit down and eat at a table that's set with a meal that's comprised solely of the leftovers from the worship of idols. And so Daniel asks the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods because he doesn't want to defile himself, the text 
says, with these unacceptable foods. The chief of staff responds to Daniel's request in Daniel chapter 1 verse 10 and said, I am afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and drink this wine. And so if you become pale or thin compared to the other youths of your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. It's a very real concern on his part. And so Daniel proposes a test. Look at verse 12. Please test us, he says, on a diet of vegetables and water for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food and make your decision in light of what you see. So while the meat and the wine were characteristically offered to idols, Daniel knew and others would know that the vegetables were not. And so the significance here is not just that Daniel was willing to face consequences for his faith in God, but that he actively recognized that accepting certain aspects of his newfound surrounding culture would be detrimental to his attempts to remain faithful to God. But participating in certain aspects of that culture would not necessarily be. He had to walk an incredible path of wisdom and discernment to know that. Let's keep reading and we'll see how things turn out for Daniel in verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who'd been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only with vegetables instead of the food and wine prepared for the others. See, this particular decision that Daniel undertook might seem to us trivial, but Daniel recognized something. He recognized that the invitation to come and learn and eat in the king's service would come with some very unique temptations. Dr. Joyce Baldwin further elaborates, quote, the defilement that Daniel feared was not so much a ritual one as a moral one, arising from the subtle flattery of gifts and favors which entailed hidden implications of loyal support however dubious the king's future policies might prove to be. Daniel would be essentially indebted to the king to participate in whatever the king's will and desire was. And so there's two important lessons, I think, for us to learn here when it comes to the area of and the question of compromise. And the first is just a question that we need to ask. Who is asking for your loyalty? Who or what is asking for your ultimate loyalty? See, our surrounding cultures will fight for our ultimate loyalty. Even if we aren't in the quote-unquote king's service, our country can ask for our ultimate loyalty. Our business can. A political party, family of origin, even friendships can ask to have our ultimate loyalty. And Daniel recognized that participating in some aspects of the world would be asking too much from him on the basis of his loyalty. And see, for Christians and for those who are disciples of Jesus, we're clear and need to be clear on this issue. Our ultimate loyalty is due to one place and one person only, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ.
Our confession of faith puts it this way. Those whom God is saving no longer live for themselves. In other words, our loyalty has been transferred. They have been set free from sin and called to newness of life. And so friend, the question that we need to ask ourselves on an ongoing basis is, who are we living for today? This is a question of our loyalties. And maybe for you, this is a new question that you're beginning to wrestle with for the first time. And the question of loyalty and ultimate loyalty is one that you'll need to wrestle to the ground at some point in your life. And here at Jericho, you'll find many people who have pledged and devoted their ultimate loyalty to God. And the way that you do that is simply by laying it down and saying, God, I acknowledge that my life belongs to you and I desire you to have my ultimate allegiance. And you can do that by praying. And I'd invite you to, if that, you'd like to make a decision about that today, to use the chat feature in Church Online and request salvation. That'll put you into a private chat with one of our pastoral team, and we'd be happy to lead you through that process today. If you're watching on YouTube or in one of our non-live settings, then you can email prayer at jerichoridge.com, and we'd love to help start that journey with you. It's a journey that it tests us and tries us, but time and time again, I come back to the fact that I'm so thankful that I have made that decision to place my loyalty in Christ alone. And that's really the second question when it comes to the area of compromise, and that is this, where do you draw the line? See, Daniel drew his line in the sand. He was prepared to fully live with the consequences of trusting himself fully to God. I can think about the times when I was younger and working in the hospitality industry. And a few times we would go away on ski trips as a company. And boy, oh boy, during those times, the alcohol flowed freely and people moved quite freely from bedroom to bedroom. And as a Christian, I felt very uncomfortable. But at the same time, I felt this incredible pressure to fit in and to want to be liked and to be seen by my coworkers and my colleagues as just one of the guys. And so I can remember with regret many times where the line of compromise was crossed in the name of accommodation to my friends. And the lines may be different for you. You may dabble in alternative religious practices like fortune telling or tarot card readings. And you may think this doesn't challenge my allegiance to Jesus, but friends, the line is clear. First Samuel 28 teaches us consulting mediums and spirits of the dead is offside when it comes to living as a disciple of Jesus, because as a disciple, we declare that our trust is in God for the past, the present and the future. God alone holds that. You may not be tempted by that, but you may feel the lure of wealth and power. And so you may make sacrifices or shortcuts in an effort to acquire more. Mark chapter eight, verse 36 says, friend, you can gain the whole world, but you can still lose your soul along the journey. You cannot both serve God and greed as a primary motivator in your life. So where do you draw the line? You might be tempted by lust. You may tell yourself, well, at least I'm not having an extramarital affair. See, all of us are tempted to give in, to cross the line, even just a little bit. 
But the goal should never be to see how close we can get to the line without compromising. It should be to stay far enough away from the fire so that you don't get burned. There's an old story that's told about a stagecoach company who is hiring teamsters to drive its stagecoaches through a dangerous mountainous pass. And so the local office manager had advertised a position. People began to apply for the job. And as they were interviewed, the boss asked each applicant, how close can you drive the team of horses to the edge of the cliff as you round the mountain? And the first fellow replied, oh, I'm skilled enough. I could drive the stagecoach within three feet of the edge of that cliff. Boss thanked him for his time and called in the next applicant. In the course of the next interview, the boss asked the next person the same question. Oh, I could drive the team and the coach within one foot of the edge of that cliff. Likewise, they were thanked for their time and the next applicant were, was called in. The boss asked this person the same question and they said, well, I would drive the coach as far away from the edge of the cliff as I possibly could and that person got the job. So that story reminds us, all of us are gonna have opportunities to skirt up close to the line of compromise. And for Daniel, in this situation, he knew that it was wise for him to stay as far away from the flames of temptation as possible. And the text says that God was with him and God granted him favor and wisdom to resist and chart an alternate course. And we read at the end of chapter one that Daniel actually was then able to serve faithfully for almost 65 more years in that place of service and leadership. And we're gonna see in the coming weeks how God used Daniel powerfully because he was willing to take a stand for what is right. And so friends, I'd encourage you, like I encourage myself, let's together ask God for the wisdom and for the courage to do the same. Let me pray for you. God, we are all tempted in many ways. We all face challenges and pressures in our lives. I ask for courage and for faith that you would give us the strength to resist temptation in those times and to be ones who pledge and live out our loyalty and our allegiance to you and to you alone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, we pray. Amen.